Have you ever wanted to be bold, to be brave, speak up, take a new path in life, but you wish you had someone to walk beside you? This is A Voice of Her Own, a podcast about our journey to agency, authority, and action. Each week, you'll get inspiration, actionable practices, and support from me and from brave women of all kinds, walking their own path and telling their own stories. I'm Diva. I'm a trauma-informed coach and a doctoral student in psychology. So I know a few things about seeking an authentic life, but I'm still learning too. So join me as we support, encourage, and inspire each other. This is a podcast about showing up. This is a voice of her own. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison. And this week I had the pleasure of talking to Jessica Aitman, LMFT. Jess is a, how can I put this? She is an unapologetic powerhouse. She is a forward-facing, direct-speaking, no-bullshit, first-generation Latinx woman who also happens to be a great marriage and family therapist. So I really enjoy her direct way of um, being open, being unapologetic, speaking her mind. And so it was a great conversation. We talked all about what it's like to be a first-generation Latinx woman, to raise children of color. We talked about the pressures inherent in that, how to maintain your sense of self in relationship when you're really busy with all the different roles that you play because she's a mother, she's a wife, she's a daughter, she has children, she's in private practice, she's also working in clinic, and and she's also training for a marathon. And so she gave us a lot of actionable practices based on her 12 years of experience as a clinical therapist. And I love the fact that her actionable practices are rooted in a holistic way of looking at wellness and also that Uh, as she calls them, they are the low-hanging fruits. These are the things that we can address today to make ourselves feel better and have a better um, way of going out into the world and managing all of those roles. It was a great conversation. I think you will really love her. She is funny. She is direct. She is unapologetically herself. And uh, so without further ado, Jessica Aitman. So, hey, Jess, welcome to A Voice of Her Own. I am super excited that you're here today. And I want to tell everyone that Jess and I used to work together, and my first name is Jessica. So, we used to be Jess and Jess. So, if she calls me (laughs) Jess instead of Diva, you'll know why, because obviously that's my first name. So, Jess, 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 hello. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I am. I'm happy to be recording again. It's been, I do my podcast in batches and it's been several weeks, probably a month. And um, it's been nothing but grad school. And as you know, like it's, it's a slog. So I'm really happy to do like the creative work and get back into talking to women and, and, and getting stories out there. So thank you for coming and thank you for being a guest. Thanks for having me. I'm a big believer in creativity as an outlet for self-care. So I'm, I love that that's what you're doing in between your grad school work. Yeah, no, I had this realization last, not last quarter, but the quarter before I took a class um, that was about archetypes. And I realized that the, like the dreamer, the creator, that that archetype was like 
not only not on stage, <laughs> but I was like actively pushing it away. And I oh. thought, oh, this is so interesting. I need to like revisit that. And so this, the, the marketing, the, the creative part of, of outlining and planning, all of that is like so satisfying. So speaking of satisfying, my first question to my guests is always, what is alive for you right now? What is juicy and, and like Ooh. exciting <laughs> for you? Now? Um, for me right now, the answer is going to sound unusual, but discomfort in the oh. best possible way. Oh, interesting. Um, I have been throwing myself into some of the self-help books that are out there right now. So books like Atomic Habits and most recently, The Comfort Crisis and how comfort has really helped foster an increase in anxiety and depression in a lot of people. I think oftentimes we think when we're comfortable, we're safe and that's great. But being outside of our comfort zone is really an important growth factor, we'll say, an evolution factor. So I am really working hard on um, embracing discomfort or being uncomfortable. Now, obviously in very specific context. So for me, <laughs> this is physical at the moment and I am training for my first marathon. So it yes. is very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also really, really rewarding. Um, the book, uh, The Comfort Crisis talks a lot about this idea of a Masogi challenge, a challenge that you take on. Um, and this is kind of my halfway Masogi challenge. Typically you don't train before, um, you just jump into the challenge headfirst and do as well as you can. That's kind of the goal, be uncomfortable, figure it out. But um, I am training just so I don't get injured. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's interesting. I've heard of Atomic Habits. I haven't heard of the second book and I, I would love to hear more about it. Maybe we can circle back to it a little bit later because um, one of the things that I've been thinking about is how poorly I handle the discomfort of not doing well at something mm. and how like, you know, if you, if you're somebody that a lot of things come to you easily, when you come up against something that doesn't, you're like, well, screw this. I don't want to do this. This doesn't feel good. So it's like that process of being like, oh, I'm a newbie. I'm not a natural. I'm like, I don't know anything and I can't pretend that I do. Those are all like places of real discomfort for me. And it's been mm -hmm. great to sort of delve into them because if you don't, if you're unwilling to be uncomfortable, you are like missing out on a huge range of opportunities. And experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Are you doing ice baths? Like, I feel like people's discomfort is about ice baths I, right now. I absolutely <laughs> do. I, I do. So I will say this in terms of mental health, I have really shifted over the last few years in my career and I'm very much um, looking at it from a more holistic place. I want labs done. I want to check your magnesium levels. I want to know what your sleep is like. I want to work on kind of these biological pieces that are missing factors, we'll say. But research has shown most recently that taking those ice baths for 11 minutes a week, that's kind of the number, the general number, helps really decrease symptoms of anxiety and depression. Um, is it joyful? No, not in the moment, right? You're shocking your nervous system. It's, it's pretty uncomfortable. Um, but it is a really rewarding experience because you come out of that coldness with the, an amount of energy that's just unreal. Your body is ready to go. It's like taking, we'll say a shot of adrenaline. 
Um, it's, it's really moving. It's a really interesting, I don't do it all the time. My husband is very much the biohacker in the family. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the cold, cold plunges are, are really helpful. Interesting. Well, okay. So let's back up because a, a lot of people don't know why it is that you can speak with some authority on these things. So can you give me a little bit of a bio, give me a little bit of background, who you are, where you come from and where you are today, what you do? Yeah, of course. So I am, my name is Jessica Aitman. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in the state of California. Um, I'm bilingual English, Spanish. Uh, Spanish was my first language. Uh, my family comes from Mexico and El Salvador. So I am mixed. And um, I actually grew up in Alaska, which is pretty out there. So I had a wide range of developmental experiences, but jumping forward, I got my bachelor's degree from Washington State University in psychology, and then I got my master's in marriage and family therapy and art therapy from Notre Dame de Namur University here in Belmont, California, in the Bay Area. Um, so I really enjoy, like I said, art therapy and the artistic endeavors around treatment as well. I've spent the last geez, I'm 12 years <laughs> uh, working primarily pediatric behavioral health. But in the last two years, I've really shifted to um, family treatment and couples treatment. I've been doing that a lot more. I'm part-time private practice. The other half of the time I work in integrated behavioral health for a clinic system up here in Sacramento. So that's kind of my general coverage um, in terms of professional career. I'm also a lady, a mama. Um, I am married. I have siblings, parents. I'm I'm a part of a way larger dynamic. So, um, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. It's definitely a part of the journey, right? <laughs> yeah, and I love that you connect to all of the things that are, you know, none of us is one thing. We're all in a constantly shifting series of roles and you know connections and. And I, I love that you speak that that out loud. Um, I am curious. So, so I guess maybe later we'll get into the. I looked at your website and it looks great. And I was like, oh, the Gottman Institute. I want to talk about that later. That's super interesting work to me. And also, I noticed that you said that you're doing some of the fair play um, mm -hmm. work, which you are the person who turned me onto it. And I definitely want to talk about that at some point. I was curious though, just getting back to. Um, I mean, that is like the Mexico, El Salvador, Alaska. Are you first generation, second generation? Like, can you, where's your family? Um, how, how did you come to be here in California? Right. So my parents, um, they came illegally as children. Um, and then my dad joined the military at 18 and um, married my mom. And at that time, there were certain... I guess, laws in place where he could become a U.S. citizen. So he went ahead and did that. My mom actually did not become a citizen until I was in third grade. When I was studying um, for my history test, she was also studying for her um, her citizenship test. So we oh, studied wow. together, which was really yeah. interesting, the colonies and kind of all of that. Um, so they had me and my siblings. So we are basically the first generation born here, I am. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been a great experience so far, <laughs> but I will tell you that we're considering leaving the country. <laughs> yeah. Just to I, adventure, you know, we want to, we want to take the kids to see all sorts of things and have a lot of different life experiences. Yes. So as a side note, I, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but you said that you were thinking about settling in Fayetteville. Is that right? 
Yes, that's, that's okay. the home base. What, we'll why? <laughs> so I just was like, I was immediately like, A, why? And B, like, is this a place I should go to? <clears throat> because we're <laughs> constantly trying to figure out like, where should we live? Where should we live that we can have the biggest influence in terms of what we want to do with our practices and our, you know, our practice of mental health? Um, and then also like, where should we live in terms of our own growth as people? So I was like, Fayetteville, what? why? What's going on there? What do I need to know? So tell me about this. So my, um, my husband's grandfather lives in Atlanta. So we go visit him probably twice a year, three times a year, take the kids to go see him. And, um, he had mentioned, you know, he's getting toward end of life. He's in his eighties that he would love to have us around more. So we had considered, well, maybe we'll move to Atlanta. Uh, but then we found Fayetteville, which is about 20 miles South of Atlanta. And it is, uh, the best school district in Georgia, but really we're making this move, um, in an attempt to de-digitalize our family, <laughs> if right. that's a word, if that's a term. Um, we're really moving toward, we want to have a garden, we want to be self-sustainable, um, we want our kids to experience something different than maybe what's being experienced right now by a lot of children. Um, the information feedback loop, my son has goes to a wonderful school, um, but has access to an iPad and is regularly very anxious about a lot of kind of events happening worldwide. And I think he has too much information sometimes and that really highly impacts him. So we are moving to a quiet, small place to live a quiet, peaceful life and hopefully ground our kids a little bit more. I know that we can't avoid them being exposed to all of these things that are happening in the world, but it is really important for us to let them experience being a child, which I think is something that many of us older children didn't get to experience. I'm the oldest of three. So that makes a big difference in how I um, interact with the world. I'm a go-getter. I'm busy. I, I'm constantly working toward things. Um, but I'm looking forward to reading books and planting flowers and, um, cooking meals with my kids, I think I want to bring it back to maybe a more humble place than where we've been for the last 10 years. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I'll tell you, there's something, even though I don't, I don't do therapy, I do coaching, but there's something so different about having that experience with someone else in a natural setting like just being outside with your feet on the ground, you know, obviously I do it with horses, but like a lot of the coaching that I do is the horses are there, but, and the, the, the Creek is there and the redwood trees are there, but it's just like, we're not meant to live in a box. That's mm -hmm. not natural. And I really think that people don't recognize how much grounding they're missing out on by not being there in that growing food and having being barefoot and, you know, it just a whole lot of things that we've given up without really thinking through the consequences. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think it's been really challenging for us because we see how great tech can be and what potential lies there. But I don't think that there's been enough research on the impact it's having on our youth. And specifically, a book that I highly recommend to anybody um, that came out a while back was iGen. And it's around the research that has been done so far, and it's really detrimental. There have been massive shifts in how children develop and 
even in later life, right? Oftentimes children are staying home with their parents in their 30s, which, you know, was kind of unheard of back in the day. We have gotten very comfortable, which pulls me back to that book, The Comfort Crisis. It's really good to be uncomfortable. It's really good to do scary things every so often and really stretch your comfort zone as far as you can to widen your breadth of experience. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you saw that. I think it was the New York Times put out that article recently about the suicidal ideation of young girls and all of these issues. And I'm like, where, you know, where do you think this is coming from? This is obviously the one thing that has changed the most for these girls growing up is having this constant feedback loop about who they are, what they look like, what they're doing. Do they have enough friends? I mean, there's like this continuous loop of information that takes them outside of any idea of what it means to just know themselves and just have like an idea for themselves. And, and I, especially when they're developing, right. And right. They're trying to figure things out like my, so to give a little bit more context on my current family dynamic, um, my husband is both Caucasian and black. However, he is white presenting and my son is fairly white presenting. Our daughter is less so she looks pretty Latina. Um, but in that context, my son is being exposed to information about people of color. And while he identifies as a person of color, he doesn't necessarily present that way. And so it's very confusing for him and it causes him to feel as an imposter in his own culture, which is really challenging. Um, and something that I think isn't talked about as often when we look at the kind of long-term impact of this feedback loop that you're you're sharing with me, it, it is really challenging to keep kids on track when they're being fed information and even misinformation about who they are or the dangers that do or don't exist for certain people in this world. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I was going to ask you about that because, um, well, to begin with, I had watched, this was a while ago, I had watched an episode of Anthony Bourdain's show, and it was about first-generation Latinx folks feeling like they were kind of displaced, like they weren't American enough to be accepted here, but they weren't Mexican enough to be accepted in Mexico. And like <clears throat> that whole set of pressures that goes along with being first-generation and like having knowing that you're standing on the shoulders of all of these people who have worked so hard to put you in a position where you can do something like go to college and so on and so forth. But feeling that real internal struggle with like, who am I? Where do I belong? And I think, you know, in a family like yours, and this is super interesting to me, like all of those dynamics are happening all the time because you have your husband who, you know, people might assume is white and talk mm -hmm. to him as if he is. And then you have, you know, you have just a whole mix of things. And I would love to hear more about your experience with that. And especially you, you specifically as first generation, like, did you feel that pressure? Did you feel that internalized? Like, who am I and where do I fit and what's going on? I still feel that pressure. Um, I think that still exists for me very much, especially having grown up in Alaska. My cousins, my aunts, uncles, family all lived in California. Um, and I was really sheltered. I grew up with moose in my yard and uh. a creek with 
frogs in the front and I would sleep at midnight on my trampoline outside because it was safe to do that up there. And just, it was a different life experience. So when I would come down and visit, I was very much um, the outsider, the outcast in just my own family. And so that is something I think that I'm constantly challenging. As an adult, I'm much more cognizant of the fact that it just doesn't matter. I am who I am. I get to be who I want to be. I identify how I identify. And if um, somebody wants to judge me for that, then that's their business, not mine. But there are still moments as, as of maybe a couple of days ago, my aunt called me and was like, yeah, but you, you were never street smart. You were never. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> all these, all these little moments, you know, these little microaggressions that I'm like, okay, <laughs> um, wow. it still exists. It's still something that I work with, but what I am doing differently is I am not hiding or shying away from anything when it comes to my own children. So we talk about the fact that my son is white presenting. We talk about the fact that his dad, you know, is white presenting his stepdad. My husband is his stepdad. Um, but we call him dad cause he's dad. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the fact that um, my daughter is a mix, a beautiful mix of being black and Latina Latinx. And so we have a lot of conversations around it. We also talk about what that means and what that looks like when police are involved or when something happens, um, how we need to behave. We're having real hard conversations, but I think that that's something that our parents avoided. Um, and as an example, my in-laws were, were not super pleased with the fact that I was telling our daughter that she is both Latinx and that she is also black. And they mm -hmm. felt like, you know, we we don't see color. You shouldn't be teaching your kids to see color. And I I really think what a what a privileged worldview. <laughs> right. Um, it is really important to see color and acknowledge every facet of every person because it's beautiful for starters, but also because it helps shape who they are and their experiences. And you cannot experience someone fully if you're not opening yourself to experiencing them fully. So I really, I've really worked hard to have hard conversations with them. We talk about it a lot. Um, but I think that really it won't come into play until maybe my son is in his teens where he clearly gets it. I, not that he doesn't now, but I think the level of maturity just isn't there yet to fully grasp a lot of what's happening in today's world, especially around the black communities. Yeah. I, my take on it is like, A, I'm not a parent, but it would be... I would be afraid. I, like, I'll just be honest. I would. There would be a part of me that would be afraid if I was raising brown children, specifically a, a young man. Just, you know, and I say that not like, not in the sense of like, oh, you're going to be a target, but like you have a whole different perception of reality. And when you say like, we don't see color, you're basically saying, I don't believe that you're in that reality. I don't believe that I believe that we're all in the same reality together when we all know that that's not true. I'm a cis white woman. If I get pulled over, like my experience is going to be different, you know, and, and to and to say I don't see color is like really telling people that that and this is something that drives me insane. I feel like it happens to women a lot is like not acknowledging the truth of your own lived experience. And you can't tell people, oh, I understand who you are without allowing them to say, I come from these people. I come from this place. These are my family traditions. These are the things that I learned. That doesn't mean that those are the only things you ever do or keep. But, you know, one of the reasons I think Americans are, are so challenged as a culture in terms of our 
lack of holistic well-being is that we have no place. We have no sense of self. We have no sense of self rooted in a place because this isn't our place. We took it from someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's like when you tell people, oh, I don't see color, you're, you are basically telling them, I don't see your place. I don't see any of your, what you've come from. I, I sorry, I get a little. No, I agree <laughs> with you. It, it's a really invalidating experience and it's not one that I'm going to allow my children to have. So I'm willing to accept feedback from anyone in my family. And I'm also willing to throw it in the garbage when I need to. <laughs> Did you see, um, this is this, I hope this will land right. Did you see the article? And this was several years ago, this woman wrote where she is, very light-skinned black and she said if you look at my family tree there are no white names which means that the reason that i have light skin is because i'm the product of rape and mm -hmm. i thought wow that's a really brave statement and it's you know there's a lot of validity to it because she was like i wouldn't have this color of skin had there not been you know some sort of relationship and if nobody is acknowledging that, then it wasn't a, a legal consensual relationship. And so I'm curious about, do you think that <clears throat> at some point you'll have to have a conversation with your son and daughter about, you know, the how it is that people become um, white presenting or what that does or what that level of, you know, where that comes from? Do you feel like that's something that's part of the hard discussions? I definitely think it is. And I think we've started it already because my husband is a prime example. He is somebody who um, has almost discomfort around his blackness, not because he has an issue with it, but because it's very much that that description that you gave earlier that he feels he doesn't fit into that category and that he would not be accepted if he tried. Um, it was also not something that his parents allowed him to be exposed to, which is really why I push with my kids exposure to all cultures, but especially the ones that we exist in. I don't know if you've seen the most recent, um, <laughs> this is funny, Black Panther movie, but there's a lot of um, kind of Mayan, Aztec folklore wrapped into it that was really lovely to see. It was a beautiful representation. Um, and we really dialogued a lot about that with my son. And I think that that was really important. But I do think that um, because their father has had so many challenges with his blackness, it has been good to see him work through it and have conversations with him in front of the kids so they can see what it looks like to challenge even your own thoughts around who you are and that imposter syndrome that you're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely feel that there is kind of um, a lot of folks who are saying like, well, you know, I'm thinking of your, your in-laws and maybe even your own family where they're like, we're, we're going to push you in the direction of being able to do these things that we couldn't do. So therefore we're going to also not look back. We're not going to look at who we are and where we came from because we want you to succeed. Mm -hmm. And success means being assimilated into this culture. For a very long time, the narrative was that I'm American. Mm. And it was not until maybe as a teen that I realized, I don't know, I have culture, I have heritage. And it's not something truthfully that I'm super familiar with. My sister, I have two younger sisters, my middle sister, Bianca, she is 
very much in touch with our culture. Um, and she has done a lot of research and she's just, she could tell you the whole, you know, Aztec Mayan history. I can tell you very little. And a lot of that was because I felt ashamed and I felt really um, embarrassed to have to research something that I wish I would have been able to learn from my own parents. Um, yeah. And a lot of that was my dad being in the military, being gone all the time, my mom raising the three kids while dad was deployed. You know, there were there are a lot of factors and I can certainly um, understand why my parents made certain decisions. But I think that this next generation of humans coming up, this next group of adults is really fascinating because we are really working hard to break intergenerational traumas and and we're really setting boundaries that have never been set before. <laughs> we're really evolving. Uh, and it's really challenging for, we'll call it the baby boomer generation, right? Yeah. Um, but I I find it fascinating. I definitely find it fascinating. And I think that it's, it's more common than we let on. But I try to teach my kids as much as I can. So, you know, I know about certain aspects of the culture, cooking around, you know, different cultural pieces and and we work really hard to try and teach them as much as we can from what we know but what we know is minimal to be honest um we had to have a powerpoint presentation of zach's black history so i have that it's beautiful photos of his whole family um and just things he never knew he that's had amazing heard that he'd never yeah it was it was really beautiful um but that's we're learning, we're, we're the generation breaking it. And my hope is that our children will continue the tradition of being able to assimilate to current culture, but accept and enjoy the culture that they came from. Yeah, I it's so interesting because I, I took, um, oh, power, privilege and culture, maybe that was last year. And one of the things that we had to do in this class is research our own family. And I'll tell you, Jess, I was freaking shocked at how little I knew about where we came from, you know, who did what, I, like, it was so interesting. And I realized like my, I'm Gen X and my generation is sort of, I would say profoundly distanced from who they were. And partially that's because, you know, baby boomers were making a big break, but it's also because the nature of this country is to be moving and to be, I mean, I recognize that there are people who still live where their family lives. My partner comes from a place in Indiana where his entire family was in a two block region of a very small town yeah. in a very small place. So that does happen. But I think especially when you live in a place like California, you know, who's from here, you know, people are constantly coming and going and, and it's like, so it was so interesting to go back and really recognize like, oh, here's all these habits of thought and attitudes and assumptions about reality that have been passed down to me without me even knowing. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I, we used to hear all the time in my youth, like, oh, we come from a line of brujas, of, of you know, curanderas, people that cure, people that are yeah. witches, we'll say in, in English. And I just was always like, you guys are nuts. Like this family is <laughs> crazy. And as an adult, I have moments. I have moments of, of just like, hmm, intuition we'll say and and it's almost always right and i'm like sometimes i really wonder <laughs> you know like just this this family history that i i never gave enough weight to or explored and and i'm curious to explore it now and so that's what i've been doing i would say lately and i reached out to my sister not that long ago actually after watching that second black panther movie and 
asked her if she could refer me to some books around Aztec and Mayan culture because I think I was really ashamed and felt that imposter syndrome. But I think I told you earlier, this is my year of fearlessness. I'm not going to be ashamed or afraid this year. I'm going to learn, do, feel, experience whatever I want to. (laughs) I'm done holding back. I really want to just live whatever that that means to me, right? And to our family. Yeah, I love that. And I, before we move on to the fearless part, I want to say that's really interesting to me that that your family has that lineage because, in fact, you are a healer. And I think the depth psychology perspective would be that psychology, not the science Skinner psychology, but the the more Jungian mystical psychology is really the modern. It is the equivalent, the modern equivalent of the healer, the witch, the shaman, right? That's what we have decided we're giving that authority to is the people who are psychologists and therapists. And so it's like, even without knowing it, part of you has manifested that. I love that. I'd never thought of it that way, but I think now I'm going to have to add it to my website. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I would love to see you delve into that because if you feel that you have intuition, that's part of what makes you a good therapist, right? Is that you just grasp it. You just grok it. You're with somebody and all of a sudden something pops in your head and you're like, you know what? I think I need to ask them this question. I really love the field. I really love people. I love um, engaging with people. I love supporting them. I enjoy caring for others. So in that regard, you're totally right. I think uh, even with the intuition piece, most recently, my daughter has been super sick. She's been sick for about a month and they had said, well, it's this and it's that and it's this. And then we just recently found out that she has um, gallstones. But the fact that it's just been like an itch, I had this itch and I'm like, we haven't this is not it. We haven't nailed it yet. And then once we got the results, I was like, this is what's been bothering me for the last month. I knew there was something I could tell, but I could not for the life of me pinpoint what, but that's the kind of intuition I'm describing. Just something is just slightly off enough for me to feel it and perceive it and try and suss it out, try and figure out what we need to do. And, uh, And I've tapped into it a lot more, I'd say, over the last six months. But really, my hope is to lean into it as much as I can over the next year. Yeah, I think that that particular way of knowing or that particular intelligence is something that, you know, oftentimes we either talk ourselves out of it or someone else, we allow somebody else to talk ourselves out of it. And it's like, the more that you acknowledge it, the more that you thank it, the more that you give it, you know, the appreciation it deserves, the more that it's available to you. And it's have not to go ahead. Have you by chance read the book, The Gift of Fear? No. So that I don't do any reading outside of school at this point. <laughs> and I'm I don't just like, you, what does it mean to read for enjoyment? <laughs> <laughs> so The Gift of Fear actually describes that exactly how often women specifically are taught not to trust their intuition and yeah. how much of a gift fear can be. Um, mm-hmm. That fear, it, much like, let's say, anxiety and trauma responses, right? All of these things are trying to keep us safe to some degree. Fear mm-hmm. is trying to keep us safe to some degree. And how do we kind of lean into that intuition and accept the fearfulness that we're experiencing? Oftentimes, we can challenge it and move forward. But sometimes leaning into it and accepting that something is off and we need to remove ourselves from a situation is the key. And so you're totally right. I, it would be a great book for you to pick up at some point to, to check out how often women really are, even they've learned 
this behavior to talk themselves out of their yeah. experiences. They've learned that, oh, this doesn't seem logical, but it's not always about logic. Sometimes it's just about feel. Yeah. Well, every every book that you've mentioned and, and whatever we talk about, I'll put in the show notes for sure. And I am always interested in those kinds of resources because one of the things that I talk about, and I, I talk about it um, when we're out with horses, is your, your safety is reliant on yourself. You can't put yourself, you cannot bubble wrap yourself and put yourself in a place of safety because things happen. Like out with the horses, you know, they could get spooked, a branch could fall from a tree, you know, one of the redwoods could fall mm -hmm. over, like we don't know. But your own sense of safety is internal. And when you start actually believing, when you start, I would say, maybe believing isn't the right word, but like, perceiving the times that you feel unsafe and then speaking it and acting on it, it becomes a reliable source of information and nobody can do that for you. That's something that like you have to find a compass inside of yourself about your own safety. And that is something that we, I think probably is an innate human trait that we have just in modern life, you know, for a variety of reasons, historical reasons, decided not to um, acknowledge. But I, for women in particular, I, I can't express enough how important it is to find your own internal sense of safety and act on it. Okay, it is time for the shout out. The shout out is something that I am excited about that I recommend. It is a person, place, thing, idea, or product that I want to share with you because I think it's great. Um, sometimes it is an affiliate link. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's just me being enthused and thinking maybe you will get uh, some enjoyment out of it as well. So this week I want to talk about Hungry Root. I know that especially during the pandemic, the um, the field of grocery delivery service and meal delivery service and recipe delivery service just exploded. And I was actually using these services, oh gosh, like five years ago. Um, I've tried a whole bunch of them, mainly because my partner doesn't know how to cook. I don't think he would agree with that statement, but I'm going to tell you straight up, that's true. It's truth. Hashtag truth. So I thought, well, gosh, um, maybe if we get some of these cool recipe delivering services, then it'll be easy. You can just follow the recipe cards and that it didn't work because if you don't know how to cook, you can't learn it out of a box. That just doesn't happen. It just ends up taking a really long time and everybody's frustrated. So we kind of put that on the shelf. We had tried a bunch of them. And when I got into grad school, I I quickly realized that it was a whole different ballgame from my undergrad work, my time, the amount of energy it required. And also because I work and I have a business, um, it was just too much. So I told my partner, hey, like we have to figure something out. I cannot be the primary person doing all of the cooking, all the recipe choosing, all of the grocery list making all of the prep, like even just the mental energy to try to figure out what we were going to have for dinner was just killing me. I was over it. So 
We found Hungry Root, and one of the reasons that I chose it is because I'm super picky about ingredients. They have to be really high quality. I want them to be organic, free range. I want them to come from a reputable source. I don't want to have any cruelty involved in my in my eating, if at all possible. That's how I try to source things. We have a CSA that we get every year. Like we care about it. It's important to me. And Hungry Root had the best quality ingredients. So anyway, we picked a plan and I will say it took us a little while to like figure out what we liked and what we didn't like and how it all worked. Um, but we love it. We have been getting Hungry Root every week for several years now and the beauty of it is the quality of the ingredients are great it's really easy to find things you can buy groceries on top of recipes or you can just pick recipes and they'll send you all the groceries i like to combine it i probably get four recipes and then i'll choose some extra groceries so i can mix things up but one of the things that made hungry root stand out for me is that there's always enough for leftovers and i am I date a man. So leftovers are kind of a necessity. Like he he eats twice as much as I do. And so anyway, we've loved it. It's been great. I think it's really worth trying. It's really easy to pause. It's a subscription-based service, but it's really easy to pause or cancel. So I highly recommend it. And I do have a referral code to get $50 off your first delivery. And that is a code that's over on uh, the show notes for this episode at www.avoiceofherown.com. In the show notes, find the referral code, put it in, and I believe you get $50 off your first delivery. And, you know, as a grad student, I'm going to tell you, I'm not spending a ton of money on this. It's not expensive for the quality of food that you get. So anyway, that's my recommendation. And that is the shout out. I agree a hundred percent. And I think that it's something that we have often denied for out of shame, out of um, actually really other people shaming us. It's a learned behavior for us to, to deny our natural intuition oftentimes. And so how do we raise the next generation to lean into it? And it, it starts with us, right? It starts with us practicing yeah. it ourselves and modeling it for our kids. And um, I've worked really hard, particularly with my daughter. My son is pretty mature and vocal, but she is very good at saying it's my body. No, thank you. And just being able to identify how, where do you feel that in your body? I feel angry in my fists. You know, she's very vocal. Um, a part of that is that her mother is a therapist, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the other part of it is just that, that I really want her to feel an experience and I don't deny her experience. Oftentimes we'll tell children, go to your room. And when you're calm, you can come and talk to me. And that's teaching them that when you're emotional, you're not somebody I want to be around. You're not cared for. So instead I will let her scream and cry. And then I'll say, I'm right here. And when you want to hug, I'm ready to give it to you. Even if you're mad, even if you're frustrated and um, she regulates very quickly, she'll, she will count from four to one and calm her body down on her own at this point. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. She I mean, imagine, cool. imagine if we had been taught that skill. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> I was well, an explosive child, my poor parents. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, honestly, that whole idea of that there are only certain things that you can present that are acceptable is something that people, it takes years of therapy to unpack. 
right? It takes years of therapy to unpack and even longer to unlearn because you really have to find somebody who meets you with unconditional positive regard. And that is something that I have truly only ever experienced with my husband. Mm. And I mean, truly unconditionally loves me. I could be hanging from the wall, you know, tearing <laughs> things down, just screaming my hair on fire. And he'll be like, I love you. It's going to be okay. And I'm like, why are you so nice? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, he's really like the first time in my life I've ever experienced it. But the moment that I experienced it was in a very difficult moment in our marriage, um, a moment where I really thought this is going to be the end. This is going to be what breaks us. And of course, always, as always, it's involving, you know, family dynamics and and in-laws and such. And that just, I had this idea of how it was going to go and it went a completely different direction. And he was like, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I want to support you. How can I do that? And I'm like, but I'm, I messed up. I, I shouldn't have said anything. And, you know, I, you should be mad at me. And he's like, that's not what this is. That's not, I love you. I know that you're a good person. You're bound to make a mistake every so often, but just giving me the grace to have made the mistake that I made and not holding it against me, not telling me I'm a bad person, not yelling at me. I mean, I wanted to be berated to some degree Mm -hmm. and to have him meet me with just absolute unconditional positive regard. You, I know who you are as a person, this was one moment in our experience together, but it does not define every other moment. And I love you. And I was like, man, I can, I can do this with my kids now. I've learned it. I learned it from right. my husband. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, well, and something that you said about being the oldest, um, I am in a strange situation because I have two older half sisters and then a younger half sister, but I was raised being the oldest of my younger half sister, right? Two separate kind of families. And, um, there's something about that position that really, oh, it just, there's so much perfectionism. There's so much, I have to take care of everything. I have to be the responsible one. I have to, that the, somebody else coming along and saying like, you fucked up and that's okay. is so, it's almost like, what? Like I, it's almost like you can't comprehend it yeah. because it, you, it was like you have internalized it. Scary freedom. You know, I don't know what it's like to be loved in all of my errors, all of my flaws, right? I was loved conditionally. And I think more often than not, kids are without parents even realizing it. It's not done with intention. We love yeah. our children, but we we are not unconditional about it. Not in the way that we could be, I should say. Yeah, no, I agree. And I also want to touch on one of the things that I think is so important about the story that you just told is that once you feel something, you can make your way back to it. Once you actually feel what something feels like, and you could say that this is something that you get from like kinesiology, right? So once you do an exercise the correct way and you know what the form feels like, you can practice and get better at it. But Mm -hmm. you have to have that experience of feeling it to actually even understand what it is. And so it's like the more that we can offer that in our relational, you know, wherever it's safe for us to do it relationally, the more that we're creating a ripple that goes out in the world. Like you felt it. So now your kids feel it. So now your kids can give it to other people and so on and so forth. And I would say 100% true. I mean, I it's not that I didn't love my kids, but it was not to this degree of just I can see you and give you grace, right? Even in my my harder moments as a mom, you know, we're 
you're tired, you work all week, I'm running private practice, I'm in a clinic, even in those really tough moments, I can, I can find it, I can put put myself back there to that moment where in my one of my worst moments, one of the times where I really wish I would not have opened my mouth and said something, which is very rare for me. Um, I'm pretty <laughs> comfortable saying whatever I need to say. Uh, but I really, I really impacted lives and situations and really kind of changed our entire dynamic with my in-laws by opening my mouth. And I felt a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I really beat myself up. And my husband was just so graceful and kind. And I can I can pull it up with my daughter in the moments where she's really feisty because she's a spicy gal. Um, I'm able to resource that and I, I can pull it up and I can keep myself really regulated and, and see her and love her in her flawed moments because she's two and she's going to have a lot of those. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes we're tired and we're frustrated and it's hard to resource that. And so I, I totally want to validate all parents' experiences. It's not the easiest practice, but it is a very rewarding practice. And one that I think that we really have to work on in order to really uh, continue to benefit generations to come. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's courageous work because it, you know, it's, it's self-work. It's again, like you have to learn how to model. It's not a matter of telling your kids who they have to be or what they have to do. It's you learning how to be in a way that allows them to be the best person they can be. Mm -hmm. And, and that's brave. I, I love that. I am curious to, I had two questions. When I look over your social media, you're really upfront and transparent about things that are happening in your life. And I looked over your website and I thought, <clears throat> how are you doing all of this? Like, so you're a mom, <laughs> a wife, you're in clinic, you know, and, and, and for people who don't know, working in a behavioral health, like in a clinic in a healthcare setting is really, it's a very challenging position and, and then private practice. And then, you know, the things that you're doing for yourself, training for a marathon, like how in the midst of all of those roles, are you maintaining your sense of self? Like, what is it that makes you just like that you can come back to you and be like, I know who I am. And it's not always in relationship to other people. I would say at the moment, that's really encompassed in just the marathon training, just because I, I love a challenge. If somebody, since I was a child, if somebody ever came to me and said, oh, you can't do this, I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Let me go ahead really? and show you how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it better than you did, because that's just who I am. <laughs> it's that first child perfectionism, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I would say in the marathon training, it is absolutely psychological. It's not a physical exhaustion. It's mental a lot of the time. And so when I'm running, you know, 10 plus miles, it's a psychological game and I have to really um, challenge thoughts. And so it's almost like a, I'll call it intensive CBT <laughs> challenge <laughs> right in that moment. Like, don't, we're not going there. We're not giving up. That's, that's just, you know, an unhelpful thought that's popping up. We have to keep going. You've got to hit your 10 miles today. You don't want to get injured, you know? So a lot of that is kind of teaching myself to be uncomfortable and push through the discomfort. And oftentimes, uh, if you ever catch me running the other day, I was running and I had, um, I've developed some rashes um, and even just some, some marks from where my bras are rubbing, right? Where I'm chafing because it's long miles and I'm sweating. And so my husband came in and he's like, whoa, your bras is like really cutting you. Do you want to stop running? I'm like, no, the cavemen suffered through more. It's fine. <laughs> you well, know, it's I'm really yeah. sticking myself out. <laughs> 
Um, I it just brought me back to like, I don't, I hadn't even thought of this, but about oh seven or eight years ago, I trained for um, the Tour of the Unknown Coast, which is a bicycle race here. It's one of the, um, it's thought of one of the hardest centuries in California. And I just did the half century. So I did 50 miles and a training for that. It popped up in my Facebook the other day, which is probably why this is in my mind. But like there, it it wasn't that my body got tired. I mean, of course it did. Like, of course you fatigue, but it was like that whole thing of going back to the discomfort, the whole thing of that monkey part of your mind being like, you should stop. You don't feel good. Now's the time. Do you yeah. want to stop? You could quit. Anytime is fine. It's okay. And like having that conversation over miles and miles and miles of just being like, no, we're going to do this. No, my training thing today is 23 miles. You know, it's, it was really enlightening to me because that is the first place that I ever learned how little I like being uncomfortable and mm -hmm. how self-protective I am about it. And that is probably why I'm leaning so much into it right now. It is uncomfortable. I'm 35. I'm, uh, I recently, recently over the last year, we'll say lost 50 pounds. Um, after the baby, I had a pretty tough pregnancy with my youngest, but, um, it has led me to this kind of marathon training and my sense of self is not just around the actual training, but also around um, something that you've been talking about a lot lately that I really love, which is uh, being seen. And I think as a Latina, as a mother, as a caregiver, that's kind of one of my primary natures. I am constantly giving and giving and ensuring that those around me, specifically my husband and kids, um, have their needs met. And I was constantly negating the fact that I even had needs. I wasn't even sure what my needs were. And yeah. so at this point, part of it is being seen and saying, I love you all. I'm going to run for two hours. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, I need to be with me. And, and so my motto this year has been, I'm going to be fearless, but really I've been really pushing this narrative with my kids. The only person that you need to compare yourself to is who you were yesterday. The only person that you need to be better than is the person that you were yesterday. And some days you will not do that, right? Some days you're going to sit on the couch and eat some bonbons and live your best life. And that's great too. Um, yeah. But I'm really pushing that that idea because I think oftentimes I would stop doing something because somebody else was doing it better. And now I'm not mm. staring at anybody but myself. And when you have the ability to do that and the time to do that, it's really rewarding, scary, sometimes disappointing. There are facets of myself that I think I definitely want to work on and develop. But that's that's life. That's just evolving. So um, I think that that's a big piece of it, too. It also really helps to have a very supportive partner. I have a partner that... Um, will not only meet, but far surpass whatever needs I have. And so that makes it a lot easier for me to say, this is my need. I'm going to take care of this and have him say, okay, you go do what you need to do. Um, I think it would be a lot harder for me to have a sense of self if he wasn't my rock and my support in so many ways. Yeah. I in think general, can... how am I juggling it all? One yeah. day at a time. I don't, I don't go any further than that. I, um, I listened to the power of now. I don't know if you've listened to that one. Um, I got it on audible, which actually was way better for me than reading it in books. So if you struggled with it in the book, it's a little bit dense listening to mm -hmm. it is a lot easier. Um, but I, I really feel like that helped me. I was looking in the past and looking forward and not ever staying present and mindful that kind of 
we'll call it the Instagram word of the day. <laughs> right. Um, I wasn't being particularly mindful about my experiences. I wasn't feeling the heat of the shower on my back. I wasn't tasting the food I was eating. I wasn't just experiencing life the way that I think it probably should be experienced. And so when I started to work on um, what I call the lowest hanging fruits, the most accessible things that I can do to keep myself present and know myself well, um, that is when things really shifted for me. That is really improving basic things like sleep, my basic needs that were just neglected for so long, not by anyone around me, but primarily by me because I really put others first. So yeah. this has been a year of I'm doing me <laughs> my way. <Yeah. laughs> I'll tell you, it's so interesting to me because I was raised a feminist and I have always thought of myself as being like a pretty developed person in relationship to the other people in my life, you know, family, romantic relationships. But you know what? That was all bullshit. <laughs> like <laughs> when you actually start practicing, when you start practicing, recognizing what your needs are and valuing yourself and valuing your time, your energy, it, you know, your desires, there is so much pushback internally. My partner, you know, like if I say, hey, I'm going to go take a five day trip, I'm going to take a five day road trip and you're going to have to take care of everything. He's like, okay, have a good time. Like he's not phased by me doing those things. So it's not about that. And again, I'm really lucky, just like you, like I have a partner who doesn't, it doesn't bother him if I say I'm going to go off and do my own thing. But internally, the way that we have internalized this culture of, and I talk about this in the year of saying no last week or the week before, is like our sense of who we are as women is that if we aren't taking care of other people, A, are we really, are you really a woman? Like, mm -hmm. are you really a good woman? Are you really a good mother? Are you really a good wife? But B, like, if we don't do it, is somebody else going to come in and take our spot? You know, and it's like, ah, all I want to do is go, you know, train for my marathon or whatever. And, and I think that's another really important part of having something of your own is having that practice of learning how to like you said, to do the CBT, but on your own sense of, of cultural, you know, constructs that you have internalized about around it. Absolutely. And I think oftentimes I really start with like just basic mindfulness. I'll do simple things to keep myself present. Like if I'm in the car, I'm, I'm making sure like, did I notice what color trees or what size trees passed by right now? What do I remember from my drive? If we really reflect back on our day, it's easy to, to realize that we're constantly just on a motor. And that comes from those internalized experiences and just facets of ourselves that we've developed over time through social interactions and community. And so now we're in a place where exploring that is like opening Pandora's box, but in the best right. possible way. Um, and, and it's very empowering. It's very empowering and also very hard for older generations. My mom is very much a traditionalist. She's um, uh, Latina through and through, and she will care for everyone and everything before her own needs. So when I am not like that, when she sees that I'm taking time to do certain things, to her, oftentimes it can feel like, well, you're selfish. You're not willing to mm -hmm. sacrifice for your kids. But it's a constant conversation around, well, were you happy? 
Did you experience joy? Can you tell me moments during my childhood, mom, where you um, really lived? And mm -hmm. her answer is, if I could go back, I wouldn't clean so much. I would spend more time with you. If I could go back, I wouldn't spend so much time focusing about the future. I would try and be more present, which is exactly what I'm trying to do. Part of this is physical health related. Part of this is self-care related. Part of this is challenge related. I like the challenge. I think running a marathon is terrifying. I'm also really excited <laughs> about it. Um, but then there's this piece that's also at play here where I am teaching the older generations. My mom has desperately wanted to travel, has been waiting and waiting and waiting to do so, and is finally planning a trip to Turkey. That's one of oh. the places she wants to go to. And it's a huge deal. Amazing. She's avoided. Yeah. She's like, I just, I don't, I don't know how to do it. And and so we're really like, it's time, mom, you need to get out there. And and so um, lots of evolution on that side, but still very much the traditionalists. And a lot of what I'm doing looks to, I think, all the parents involved in our lives um, as selfish. But I would argue that I am much better to my children now that I'm focusing more on myself than if I weren't. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, selfish is like, it's a relative term, right? I mean, there's a sense to me, I had a, um, a classmate who was telling me she was raised very traditional Latinx family. And she said that in her family, women would not sit down to eat without making sure that the men in the family had food. Mm -hmm. So like even to just sit and like be like, I'm really busy. I need to grab something to eat. And so I can get going was like shameful. You know, her, mm -hmm. her mother would just be like, what are you doing? Like you, you know, your husband doesn't have food. Like you can't do that. And so that idea of like giving yourself away or relentlessly depleting yourself for others is actually also selfish because it means that you can't model for anyone else how to be a person who is joyful, who has creativity, who has that spark of love and life. It You can't do both. They don't exist to, in the same reality together. And it's, so, yeah. you know, it's a relative term. And that is an experience for me as well. My dad comes to visit. He will sit at the table and wait for me to give him his coffee and serve him his food, which is fine. I'm fine. You know, I can, I can, given here or there, but I will tell you this, I work evenings um, twice a week when I'm in private practice because it's more accessible for a lot of families. And so I will get done at 7 p.m. The kids will be fed and Zach, my husband, will serve himself and myself and we will eat together. He, he will wait to eat. Even though I will tell him every day, do not wait for me to eat. I know that you're hungry. Eat with the kids. It's totally fine. No, there's just this this barrier breaking that my husband does without even knowing that he's doing it. You know, he doesn't know a lot of my cultural experiences. Obviously we've talked about a lot of them, but not every single one. And so when these little moments come up, it's such like a beautiful experience for me because I see that there is a new normal that exists for me now. And I'm hoping to pass that on to my, to my babies. Mm. I love that. I okay, so we're uh, right around the hour and I there are lots of things that I haven't gotten to ask you about. Uh, can you touch briefly on why you're working with the Gottman Institute framework and why you're working with fair play and what that is? Because I was super excited when you brought up fair play and I've actually shared it with several other women and they're like, what the, we, what it, what is this? They were so excited. So like, can you give that as some something that people might want to check out. 
Absolutely. So Gottman um, Institute is fantastic. John Gottman and Julie Gottman, um, they run the Gottman Institute up in Seattle. And I'm familiar with them because I'm an MFT. And so in graduate school, we talked often about Gottman's research. Gottman, um, Gottman therapy, the Gottman method and EFT are kind of the two standard practices for couples treatment. Um, they're the most efficacious, the most well-researched. So I had to choose between the two, but I had experienced um, in grad school, a professor who taught us a Gottman intervention and it was a game changer. So a lot mm. of the reason why I decided to go with Gottman was that experience right in grad school, but also because I really believe that we manage conflict incorrectly and Gottman really pushes that as well we are constantly looking for resolution to conflict. We are constantly looking to fix things, make things better. But when you're in a long-term relationship with somebody, you will have perpetual conflict that does not have a resolution. Mm -hmm. You are not going to be able to change every facet of your partner and you shouldn't want to. So the goal is not conflict resolution, it's conflict management. And that is really something that Gottman pushes and encourages. And so that is what led me to train with the Gottman Institute. So I'm trained in level one, I'm completing level two, and then my goal is to work towards certification. But there's lots of balls I'm juggling. So I'm taking my time. Yeah. Um, but it's been a really wonderful training. I highly recommend it for any clinicians that are interested. So that's been a really neat experience. EFT is also really efficacious. What I've found when I was doing a lot of the research is that many men struggle with EFT because it's it's emotionally focused therapy. So um, it's a lot harder to engage in. I think Gottman feels a little bit safer for men who are not in tune with their emotion or struggle to communicate their emotion. Gottman's a safer way to dip your toe into couples treatment. It feels more, it's very much more structured. Um, there's a lot of kind of tests, we'll say, um, to assess where the couple is at and what the concerns are. And that is what drives treatment. And I think that that feels a lot safer for a lot of a lot of men in particular. I think women in general are fairly good at communicating overall. That's not true all the time, obviously. But um, I, I think that's also another thing that led me to Gottman. I wanted something that felt safe for everybody. And I think EFT is a great modality. I think it can be very challenging for somebody who hasn't done the individual work. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I would guess, and I... Um, don't know tons about it, but I would surmise that the fact that the Gottman framework says that we're not trying to change our partners, we're trying to figure out how to live with this person that we chose and manage our conflicts must be really reassuring to men because the men that I know, see, deal with, one of the things that they tell me is like, there's this thing that women do where they're like, I like you, now let me change you. And how like deeply offensive that is and how mm -hmm. it really only undermines the sense of connectedness. So I assume that that's part of it for men too. Is that, is that true? Does that seem right? I think so. Absolutely. I think that that can be a big part of it. It really depends on each individual, right? So I think one of the things that I've noticed is, especially when we look at like pulling it back a little bit, like uh, social media and TikTok and Instagram and mental health is that we will like bl make blanket statements around 
this is what works for couples and this doesn't, or this experience equates to this. And we miss a lot of the nuance that occurs in mental health treatment. And so that is one of the reasons, you know, people often ask, why don't you have an Instagram? Why aren't you pushing some of the work that you're doing? Because it's so different. But a lot of it is because there's so much nuance to care. And I don't want to give somebody information or suggestions that are not right for them, their body, their community, their situation. Um, And so that's a lot of the reason why I haven't gone that direction. But I think that it is an important piece to acknowledge. Yeah, that's a great point. I I, I agree. And that is actually a good point for talking about fair play as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Because not everybody's, you know, let's to be honest, these gender roles and these expectations uh, are not, you know, for one thing, there's no one homogenous culture here in this country. And two, not everybody's living the same reality. Like people have different experiences depending on where they grew up, where their family's from, et cetera, et cetera. I think we can take that as our baseline. But I do think that the, um, just to go into fair play, the studies show that women still do an enormous amount of unpaid labor around parenting and around household and around all kinds of things. So tell me a little bit about this and, and how, what your own experience has been with it. Yeah. So I came up against fair play, um, over the last year because my husband was up until recently working a contract with Kaiser and he was working 12 hour shifts, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that led me to be working full-time during the week and then full-time mom by myself on the weekends for the last year. Um, that included <laughs> all household oh my gosh. that included cooking meals, that included getting kids to swim lessons, piano lessons, dance lessons. Um, it, it was a very challenging year this last year. And it was a very lonely year this last year. I very much missed my husband. He's been off of this contract now. He completed it maybe two, three weeks ago. And just little simple things. We went to the farmer's market last weekend and I started crying and he's like, why are you crying? I'm like, because you're here. And just, we've been doing this for a year without you. And just, Mm. it's so different, right? The load is different, but that is what led me to the fair play method because I was struggling to stay afloat. I was struggling to survive. And um, it really was difficult. It was becoming a repetitive conversation as it oftentimes becomes to say, I need support with this and have the support for, you know, a week. And then it kind of dwindles and it's forgotten about. And then we're having to have the same. That's so frustrating. It's very exhausting. It's not helpful to the relationship. It wasn't working. Conversations weren't working. So I ran into the fair play method. um, And before I even read the book, I did buy the book eventually. But before I read the book, I bought the deck, the card deck. um, And I watched a few videos on how people were using it. And so that is what led me into it. I said, this is the load. This is what I'm carrying. But it really highlights so many facets of day-to-day life. The values that you're teaching your kids, um, who's working on that, who's making the food. And one of the biggest things that the fair play method pushes that is so important and so underutilized by couples or not discussed, I should say, is the minimum standard of care. Yes. What is the minimum standard of care for the meal that we are making our children? What is our expectation? And when you do a task in the fair play method, you are doing it from start to finish. That means conceptualization all the way to final fruition. We are not... Uh, saying, can you go pick up the groceries for me? No, if you're responsible for the meal, you are picking the meal, you are buying the groceries, you are chopping them, cooking them, making the food and serving it to everybody. It is a full 
task. We're not mm. delving any of it out because everybody is sharing their load. So this was a really safe way to have this conversation with my partner. Again, having the middleman of that card deck really felt like, okay, let's look at it. We're not waiting fingers. What? Before tell card. people what the card what the card deck is because so people card, don't know. So tell tell us how it works. So basically, there's a card deck. It has a variety of categories. I don't know them all off the top of my head, um, but like I said, they're kind of sectioned by um, like household chores, responsibilities, um, how you're you know raising your children. Are there any specific things that you want to be working on? And it's a huge kind of deep dive into both mental and physical load in household chores and raising kids. Now, not all of them will apply to you. So the goal with the deck is to pick the cards out that are relevant to your family and then decide who owns that card at the moment. So mm. more often than not, unfortunately, the woman will own the vast majority of the cards. And the man <laughs> will grab yeah. the cards that he owns. And then we talk about, okay, how do we divide this and what is the minimum standard of care and how are we going to implement this moving forward? Um, it's a really lovely method. I think where you're at as a couple is going to determine how effective it is for you. So if you're in a kind of rough place where things are aggressive already, I would recommend doing couples counseling first and maybe not jumping into this because it's very easy to slip into old habits, patterns, dynamics. Um, but if you feel like one of the only issues you're having as a couple is I just really need my husband to help me out and he doesn't get it, then this is this is the way. <laughs> this is the direction you should definitely go. Yeah, I love the fact that it's like a tangible because I think one of the things that happens is that there isn't any knowledge of how much is happening outside of that person's sphere of reality. So when you mm -hmm. start using the cards, it's like this is a tangible representation of what my day was like. And when you see it, it's like completely different than having somebody tell you after you got home from work and you've got other things on your mind, like it just doesn't have the same weight as like, look, see all these cards. This was what I did today. Here are your cards. See how they're, there's like six in my pile and there's two in yours. Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, I, I will tell a really short, funny story about this. Um, so last year, so going to grad school has changed the dynamics of our relationship, my partner and I, because you can't do it all. It's not, it's not possible. It's not like undergrad, I was kind of struggling, you know, there was a lot of balls in the air, but grad school is just a different beast. And so last year I was like, look, we have dogs. Last year we had four dogs. Now we have two, um, but we had four dogs. And I was like, look, the floor has to be vacuumed every day. It's disgusting. Like that's just a reality, which goes back to what you're saying. Like what's the minimum standard? That's not my partner's minimum standard. <laughs> So, and I said, I'm doing all the vacuuming and this doesn't feel fair to me. And he said, well, you don't mow the lawn. And I said, you're, you're right. I don't mow the lawn. And he said, I mow the lawn. That's my contribution. I don't need to vacuum. I said, you mow the lawn twice a week for three months out of the year. I vacuum every day mm -hmm. for the entire year. And so he was sort of, uh, offended by the conversation and we kind of left it because we don't always pursue things to the point where it becomes super conflict because we'll leave it and come back. So later that day, I was leaving to go to the store and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to the store. And he goes, oh, I'm going to do some outdoor vacuuming. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to call it from now on. I'm going to go do the outdoor vacuuming. I was like, 
we're going to come back to this. <laughs> we're going to come back to this conversation. That is a but it was story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really funny because obviously he's kind of a smart ass and he's funny uh, too, because we're starting to use humor and we've been doing this for a while, using humor to diffuse things that might cause conflict. Also, we did come back to it and we were able to resolve it. But, you know, it's like that idea of like, no, you, you, they're not equal. And if we had those cards, I could be like, okay, see how they're not equal? Like it's that a is, literal representation. That is a facet of Gottman treatment, which is just little things that we can do. Humor is so important in management of conflict, not resolution, but management, right? You may not agree. You and your partner may not come to terms with, you know, the vacuuming versus the mowing the lawn. But the fact that you can find levity in it is huge. And it means that your relationship is sustainable, that you can you can continue to make it work. And I think that that is really important piece. So just to highlight that, that's something specifically from Gottman. But I think that, uh, that it's really funny. <laughs> He's funny. Yeah. Guy. yeah. Well, and you know, to be fair, I, I don't know how Zach is in terms of this, but my partner and I are both fiery. So imagine if there were two Jesses, like you and I have worked together. So I know that you're fiery. <laughs> and uh, we shared an office. So I know. And, um, but imagine if you were having a relationship with you, right? I mean, that's kind of, he and I are both like, like the irresistible force and the immovable object is basically what comes together. <laughs> so we had to find humor. We wouldn't be together if we hadn't found a way to like, look at each other and be like, look at your face right now. Like, what is that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I agree. That's, that's, that. I think if you were to look and I'm not a couples therapist, but I think if you were to look at factors, like, like risk factors and resilience factors, humor is going to be at the top of the resilience factor Absolutely. list. Absolutely. It's so important to be able to lighten a moment and to be able to turn toward your partner. One mm. thing that I really recommend for couples or even, and actually I use this oftentimes too with parents and teens, we will often invalidate teenagers and their feelings and their emotions. And so very much similar to the fair play, right? We're using a deck of cards, but another way that you can do this is I'll, I will get or save small jewelry boxes, little boxes of some sort, different sizes. And then I will tell a teen to write down, you know, all of the stressors or things that are coming up for them. My math homework, a school dance is coming up, friend problems, et cetera. So they're holding, you know, seven or eight boxes. And then I'll tell them, now I want you to hold all of those boxes and clean your room. And then after you clean your room, I want you to do your homework, but you still have to hold all those boxes. You cannot drop them. And when you actually do it physically in a tangible way, it's much easier for the parents or the partners to understand, whoa, they're carrying this load all the time because we often don't think about the mental load. And that's a lot of the work that primarily females take on in family dynamics. Um, yeah. You know, my husband does not think about is the laundry done? Do the kids have their clothes set out? What are the kids having for lunch tomorrow? Do we have enough milk, right? He's just kind of a, we're going to deal with it as it comes. I'm not like that. I'm preparing. I, I carry a large mental load. And so now he is very much carrying that load with me after starting to use the fair play method. And I think that that's so important. So if there are any women out there, highly recommend the book. Um, there's also a documentary that was mm. made. I believe it was under Reese Witherspoon's company, Hello Sunshine, but I'm not totally sure. But there's a documentary that's also fantastic. So everyone can check that out. I want to say it's oh. on Hulu. 
Yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. I'd like to see that. And I want to just go back to what you said, because two things come up for me. One is, and it's so interesting, Jess, I love having these conversations because you and I are both psychology geeks, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. <laughs> I'll have my, um, I'm super happy to say that I'll have my master's after this quarter. And I know, right? Um, on the road to the doctorate. Um, <laughs> but we're, but because my school is like very much depth psychology, like you and I have these conversations and I'm like, oh, you know what we would call that? We would call that ritualizing. So by making it physically tangible, you actually ritualize what it is that you're experiencing and that ability to ritualize it makes it something that you can metabolize. Mm -hmm. It's something, and, and it's just fascinating because that's something that I tell my coaching clients, what can we do to ritualize this feeling of grief that you're having? Or what can we do so that you can move on to the things that you want to accomplish, which is why you're here, right? And the other thing that I would say that's interesting about that reminds me of horse training. This is where I learned it, but it's very, very true for people is trigger stacking. You know, we don't think of it. And so the joke in horse training is like the 13th rabbit. You take your horse out for a ride and a rabbit goes by and your horse is fine. And then you go a little further and a rabbit goes by and the horse is fine. And then, you know, the 13th rabbit goes by and your horse freaks the fuck out, dumps you, <laughs> leaves. And you're like, that horse is crazy. But you didn't recognize the 12 rabbits that that horse had to like suck up and deal with. And it became more and more tense and more and more carrying a load of stressors that are unacknowledged. And that's exactly what we do to our kids, to our partners, to our coworkers. Like we walk around forgetting that everybody is carrying, you don't know how many rabbits they have. I love that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's from Warwick Schiller. I have to give credit. It's from Warwick Schiller. And I, I learned a lot about that, um, about that whole thing from Warwick brought me to Equisoma. Equisoma brought me to Sarah Schlote. Sarah Schlote kind of circled me back around to Dan Siegel and his window of tolerance and oh, then yeah. somatic experiencing and all that good stuff. So yeah, just to give credit, but I, I do love that because I think that it's important for us to even acknowledge how many rabbits we are carrying ourselves. It starts there. Rabbits sound so much more fun than boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now when your office is full of stuffed rabbits, we'll be like, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. It'll be a new theme, a new decor for your office. Uh, it, Easter themed. Okay. <laughs> so let's let's move to, since we're way over the hour, let's move to some actionable practices. I know that um, a, the blessing of this discussion is that you're a therapist. So you probably have some practices in your back pocket that you would say are super useful for people that they could take today and start implementing. So now it's time for the takeaway. The takeaway is an actionable practice that you can take out in the world as you journey forward. It's something that could be, should be, hopefully will be of use to you. It's a practice. It's not something that, you know, maybe you're going to master right away, but possibly you could. It could be something that will really, even today, you could start and you'll see results from it, something that can help you on your journey. And today's takeaway is coming up. I, I have lots of practices, um, but nice. I really wanted to go with what I have been working on, I'd say over the last two years, which are what I call the lowest hanging fruits. And this 
has really stemmed from the idea that what's being pushed out there right now in terms of mental health, like I said, on social media or on even documentaries. For instance, there was a really interesting documentary by a psychiatrist, I believe his name is Stutz and Jonah Hill. Oh, yes. Netflix. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed it, left it feeling like this is beautiful. And I could see how someone like Jonah Hill with uh, financial resources with stability at the base of his Maslow's hierarchy of need, we'll say, um, could use this to self-actualize. But is this relevant to community mental health? Is this relevant to people of color? And the answer is no. Oftentimes right. it's not. And so for me, I've taken the perspective of instead of trying to self-actualize somebody who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from or where they're going to be sleeping that night with their children, what are the things that we can do to help them be present and survive right now? So I work really hard on some basic needs. Um, we talk a lot in treatment about diet, what are you eating? Are you consuming enough leafy greens? One of the biggest indicators, one of my first hanging fruits, we're very deficient as a society here in the United States in magnesium. Magnesium is a powerhouse. The version of magnesium that I typically recommend and that's researched for um, help with sleep and primarily anxiety is magnesium threonate. So I normally will recommend the first thing that you can do is have your doctor put in a lab, see if you're deficient or if you're low and start there. Get some magnesium in your system. That's going to help reduce anxiety. It's going to help with reduction of muscle tension, which is a symptom of anxiety. Um, and it really does help with mood. So there's this, this piece here, right? So I start with supplementation. The other thing that I also will always look at is sleep. If you are not sleeping well, you are not feeling well. Sleep is a very, very important thing that we don't realize is so important to our physical and mental recovery. In our REM state, there's emotional recovery. In our deep sleep, there's muscle recovery. There's muscle repair. If we're not getting enough of that at night, we are not fully recovering and we're not able to take on the next day. Sometimes you'll wake up fatigued or sometimes you're your, let's say, cup of spoons will be really low in the morning and you just won't make it through the whole day. So I am a huge fan of um, looking at various options, but really realistically, the first thing and the smartest thing that you can do to improve your sleep, as soon as you wake up, go outside and take in that sunlight. I highly the recommend Huberman that. Huberman Lab, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I've been listening to the Huberman Lab since it started, and that's like the number one. That is his number one protocol. It is. Number one. It makes a huge difference in mood, in, in all of it. And so I have a patient right now, actually, that um, is doing that and has used her dog as a motivator. So she started to get up, catch the sunlight for 10 to 20 minutes in the morning, and then she catches the sunlight again around sunset. That's the next time that you do it. You'll see a little bit of a boost in energy in the evening, but it will help reset your circadian rhythm and get your sleep in order. So again, I'm, I'm very much looking at basic needs when I'm talking about low hanging fruits. What are the basic needs that we can be meeting right now for a single mom who's struggling with her children? How could we get her better sleep, better recovery? How could we get her to have her muscles relax and be able to regulate through the day? If we're not dealing with all of those basic needs and we're throwing something at somebody like, you know, take 10 deep breaths. Okay, I don't have time to take 10 deep breaths. I'm not even sleeping well. I, you know, there's just a lot of 
like I said, nuance to mental health care. And so I'm constantly looking at those pieces. The next thing and probably the most significant thing is teaching mindfulness. When we talk about mindfulness, we often talk about it in the context of meditation. And I don't know about you, but meditating is not for me. I love it. <laughs> it's very, um, very efficacious, right? It's really well researched. It works for people, but I am not somebody who lives in that space at the moment, right? I have a lot happening. <laughs> so for me, the way that I ask people to implement mindfulness is one small step at a time. So this leans more into Atomic Habits, the other book, um, and doing things 1% at a time, 1% increases. So before we can get to meditating for 10 hours, right, clearing our minds or accepting the thoughts, because really that's what it is, right? You're not creating a clear space, you're accepting what comes and letting it pass through and you're kind of experiencing yourself in those moments. But what I recommend for people is to start with the things that you do every day on a regular basis, which are typically showering and eating. So if you're eating something, I would suggest starting with a mindful bite. The first bite of every meal, close your eyes. What's the taste? What's the texture? What's the temperature? Experience it, really taste it, enjoy it. Be super present in that moment. That's mm. it. One small bite at every meal. You don't have to do it the whole meal. I know that that's often not realistic, especially if you're kind of running around with kids or you have meetings, etc. But one bite. The other time is when you're showering. I highly recommend that you play with the temperature. Now, I am not somebody who loves cold, despite cold plunging. <laughs> I'm not somebody who loves the cold. So what I will do is I will actually adjust the heat and notice how much warmer it is, feel it on my back. I'll intentionally smell the soap before I soap my body or before I put my shampoo on. But it's just these little tiny moments of presence, these little pieces. That is the beginning of mindfulness. And that is how I teach people that will eventually build up to meditation. So we're starting to work a muscle that didn't exist before so that we can get to the place where that muscle is ripped and you can just meditate all day long if you want to. But I yeah. think it can be really unrealistic for people that are living in situations that are less than favorable um, and trying to make ends meet and also trying to find peace to ask them to learn meditation or have these deep philosophical conversations. It's not that they aren't capable, it's that that's not their priority and we can't blame them for that. So what are the lowest hanging fruits? And so those are kind of my top three, I would say that I start people with. Check in on your magnesium, um, make sure that you're doing whatever you can for improved sleep. And that starts with just that sunlight in your eyes, kind of like you talked about with Huberman Lab. Also love him. He's great. Highly recommend yeah. his podcast. Me and um, really looking at this mindfulness piece from a different perspective, because a lot of times people are really overwhelmed and they're like, I can't meditate. I worry all the time. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> we're going to start slow and build our way up. My motto, my ethos in treatment, and I say this to every patient at assessment, in treatment with me, we are moving one bite at a time. How do you eat an elephant? The answer is one bite at a time. You do not consume the whole thing. That would hurt a lot. So we go low and slow, and we really push that 1% narrative from Atomic Habits. At least that's how I'm practicing at the moment, we'll say. Yeah, I love that. And I haven't read that book. It's actually in my queue. But um, but it's interesting because what I, I often tell people, like, what 
you know, can you do 1% more of this? If you find something that makes you happy, can you do, can you make time for 1% more? Or if there's something that's like really dragging you down, can you do 1% less? Can you do 5% less? Like something small because, you know, it's those small, consistent, actionable steps that add up to change. Nobody changes in a big leap. That's not, that's not normally sustainable. It's, it's not. a procession of small changes and trusting the process and trusting the consistency of it. And, you know, and then you wake up six and that's why journaling is great. Right. Cause you're like, who was I six months ago? And you're like, Oh wow. Like this worked, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I love that. And I will also say back to the magnesium thing, magnesium is one of the number one things that I recommend to horse owners when I do massage on horses or when I'm, I'm like, Hey, you need to check this because you get these really hot horses. They're very tense. They're all over the place. And it's like, they probably have deficient magnesium. They're not, you need to check in and see what kind of supplementation is necessary for this horse because whatever's happening in their diet isn't giving them that you can tell because their muscles are tight as boards. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it's a chemical function of magnesium to relax. It's just, it's chemistry. And my partner used to have really bad migraines. And the one thing that he has done consistently that has made that better is taking, and there are different forms of magnesium. So you have to be aware that you're taking one that's really bioavailable, mm -hmm. but spending the money to get the kind of magnesium that's bioavailable, he hasn't had a migraine in the last year and a half. It makes a huge difference. Bioavailability is a big problem. I always recommend whatever supplementation you're using is liposomal, if you can get it liposomal, or that it has some factor. A lot of the magnesium that is super bioavailable has magtine in it. It's like a patented um, form that is just extremely bioavailable because I think the statistic is like eight to 12% of supplements that we consume, that's all yeah. that enters in our system is eight to 12%. Um, of all the supplements that we we take. So I, I think that that's a really important factor. It's an important piece. And kind of jumping off what you were saying with the 1%, that's essentially what Atomic Habits is all about. It's all about the 1%. It's all about mm -hmm. small changes, sustainable changes, and making habits accessible, right? If you buy a box of donuts, that's great. Put it on the top of your fridge in the back and you're less likely to go up there. You're going to choose the fruit that's accessible versus the inaccessible bad food, right? Just different right. ways that you can um, trick yourself into developing healthier, more positive habits. And yeah. so it's a really, it's a really powerful book. I thought it was fantastic. Like I said, I also highly recommend The Comfort Crisis. Um, I think discomfort is kind of essential for growth. Um, and I know that we haven't had the opportunity to touch too much on um, any of these other topics, but books that I'll throw out there around couples treatment, I really like Attached. So that's around attachment styles. Um, Come As You Are, which is around sexual relationships with your partner. And um, The Seven Principles for Making a Marriage Work and Fair Play. Those are kind of the, that's the Gottman mm -hmm. and Eve Rodsky did Fair Play. So those are some book recommendations I can give to anybody out there looking for support in the couple's treatment area as well. Yeah, that's great. I um, I often talk about David Schnark and the sexual, sexual crucible um, framework. His book that is more accessible to the average reader is Passionate Marriage, and I've talked about it a lot. And I'm curious if you've read it, Jess, because it's really about how important it is to be a differentiated whole person and what that requires. And it's just really interesting. So like a lot of the work on couples 
you know, it, you don't have to be coupled up to read it and get something out of it. You don't have to be in a relationship to get something out of this material because you have relationships all the time. They don't have to be romantic. Mm -hmm. So, and I yeah. think that's a big thing that my husband and I work on is how do we, how do we ebb and flow? How do we meet in the middle? Because we are not constantly linked and I don't think we should be. <laughs> I like having yeah. time to myself. Um, and so that looks like, um, like for instance, I run and he goes and plays disc golf with his friends. Um, and there's no, no questions asked, basically. I'm going to go do disc golfing tonight at three. Is that okay? Yep, sounds great. I've got the kids. Have a good time. See you when you get home. We just leave it at that. We are individuals that meet together as a couple, but we are not, we don't identify as a couple all of the time. We yeah. more often than not will meet as a couple on dates or when we're interacting, you know, in the bed. Um, but really most of the time we're best friends and we are navigating our couplage with our individual goals, needs, wants, progress. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I would say I have a pretty wonderful partner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, I think again, and I probably should wrap it up because I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. But I, but I also think, you know, much like your low hanging fruit, which I really love is that, you know, recognizing not everybody has that. And so what are the, what are the small things that you can do to feel like your sense of self, just to circle back to that, to find that maybe you don't have time to run for two hours, but maybe you do have time to take an extra five minutes in the shower to just enjoy being in a physical body, you know, just mm -hmm. small things. So I, I love that. And I really like the, the lowest hanging fruits because I think that in mental health in particular, there's a very sort of elitist way that we go about it. And absolutely. Particularly yeah. In grad school, you get taught all these things and you're like, well, yeah, if you're rich and white, I'm sure that's super handy. And it's just not accessible for a lot of people. You know, I, I think that's why maybe the brand of therapy that I'm pushing will say has worked so well for community mental health because it is accessible because it's meeting people where they're at um, without judgment, without, you know, making them feel bad about where they're at because they're just living. They're doing the best that they can. So how do we help them? And and I really have been working hard. I'm, I'm thinking about starting like a lowest hanging fruit blog where I can put a lot of little, little things that I recommend to people, but those are my top. I love it. That's normally where I start. Yeah, do it. I can't wait. I'll promote it. I will. <laughs> I will awesome. love to read it. I'm going to um, wrap this up because we've gone way over, but it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for all of your lived experience and all of your theoretical knowledge that you bring together so eloquently. It's, I hope that this is like super helpful to people because I think there's, I'm going to go back through it and find all of the gems and put them all in the show notes, but it's been a pleasure, Jess. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. I am so pumped for you and this podcast. I think it's going to be big, big. So I'm excited <laughs> to see where it goes. It's been really great to listen to, and I'm looking forward to all the other episodes. Yeah. All right. Take care, Jess, and let's check in again sometime soon. Sounds good. Have a good week. Hey, friends. Thank you again for joining me on A Voice of Her Own. I hope that this episode was useful, that it was inspiring, that it sparked something in you that you can take out into the world. And if you want to hear more episodes or you want to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss one being released, 
head on over to www.avoiceofherown.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all the show notes. You can uh, get all the links to everything we talked about and any promotional things that I have going on. So again, thanks for joining us and take that out into the world and be your badass self. Mm -hmm.